All right, well, we are in week whatever of this series. What do I have? Week six. And we have spent a couple of weeks working on this second, this fourth column of the partial, the partial kingdom. Um, I did a very lengthy review last week because we had a week off, um, but I was running a little bit out of time. If you'll remember, uh, what we saw was that in the partial kingdom, all of God's promises, particularly the promises that were involved in the covenant with Abraham, they seemed to be fulfilled. In fact, they were fulfilled, sort of. What happened is we saw the Israelites, who were God's people, they were fully made, fully established as a nation, and they were established in Canaan, God's place. And they, under, under David and under Solomon, they built the temple, and they built uh, Jerusalem. And so we're seeing a lot of these promises come through. Remember, all of this is in many ways stemming out of Genesis chapter 12, where God made this promise to Abraham that I'll make you a great nation, I'll make your name great, and in you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And so we're seeing that promise come to fruition. We spent extra time talking about the promise of a king. What happens is, when you start in the Bible, God's, God's dealings with humanity begin very narrowly with Adam and Eve. And then they continue to be very narrow, in a sense, uh, through Adam's family on into uh, the family of Noah. And in the family of Noah, we see it spreading on, and then God chooses Abraham. And all of a sudden, the promise begins to broaden because Abraham's family starts growing, growing and growing and growing. So God's, God's focus of the promise seems to be getting bigger. And then at some point, it's all of Israel, so it's massive. And then when, when the kings come, we see God narrowing his focus again. So still, he's bringing his promises to all of Israel, but he's doing it specifically through the king. And the Bible talks about that as being the covenant mediator, if you like big fancy words. So what we were tracing last week is the way God was establishing the king, right? Remember, if you're under God's rule, you enjoy God's blessing. Well, the king was part of how God was going to give his rule and his blessing to the people of Israel. The problem was, and where we ended last week was, we talked about the golden age of Israel. In, in the first part of First Kings, we see it looks like all of God's promises have been fulfilled. First Kings chapter 4 is a major place for that. The people are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They are all they're in God's place and they are under God's blessing. But halfway through Solomon's life, as you know, things go crazy. He's led astray by foreign wives and the kingdom is split apart. Now, I would imagine that many folks in here understand more of the history of, of Israel, but, it's, but I don't want to assume that. You've got to understand that, that under Sol- or after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided. And what's really confusing about it is that the two divisions, one was called Israel. So that can be really confusing. So there's two kingdoms at this point, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so much of the Old Testament, God is dealing with Judah and Israel as two separate entities. But, but just the very thought of God's people being divided, they war at each other. 
I mean, clearly, this isn't God's kingdom, like, fulfilled, right? Even though all these promises seem to be fulfilled, this doesn't seem to, to be the fulfillment. The golden age is over. Things go very, very bad, and judgment is imminent. And so what happens is Israel, sorry, backing up to, to after Solomon, Israel is attacked by the Assyrians, and Judah is, goes into decline too. They both wander away from the Lord and, uh, and turn to other gods. So clearly the golden age is over. And what happens is we're seeing that the partial kingdom, right? Remember, we're talking about the partial kingdom. The partial kingdom has been dismantled. It's been lost. The promises were all fulfilled in a temporary sense, but then it's lost, Do you remember what God said would happen if the people disobeyed? He would take them out of the land. Just like he did with Adam and Eve. He would kick them out of the garden. He would kick them out of the land. They would be exiled. And that's exactly what happened to God's people. So what's interesting about that is that it's almost like the curse has happened again. It's almost like the curse has been happening again. It happened again. God's people are divided. And they're exiled from one another. They're separated from God's place. And now they're back under God's judgment. It's just like the curse. You see? So what do we learn about that? I mean, this partial kingdom. And this is where there's so many differences in how you put the Bible together. For many people, perhaps some of you in this room, you think in terms of the partial kingdom being the kingdom. And we got to get back to that. We got to get Israel back in the land. We got to get the temple built again. We got to do all that stuff again. And, 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 but the way I read this is that the partial kingdom was just a model, it was just a temporary model. It was a very impressive model, right? Some companies spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a model of something before they build it. It's a very impressive model, but it was not the real thing. The partial kingdom pointed to something bigger and better. It was a shadow that pointed beyond itself to Christ and I believe to a future deliverance from slavery. So we'll pick up on this more in a moment. But the key thing to note now is that God has rejected the model of the partial kingdom. But what's wonderful is that he did not forget his promises. God was dismantling the kingdom in Israel because of sin. And he will never again rebuild that model. Instead, he's going to establish the real thing in Jesus. Okay, does anyone have any questions there? I'll pause for a brief moment for questions there. And we will keep going. All right, well then let's turn now to the prophesied kingdom. I'm going to try to cover, we're really going to cover the rest of the Old Testament tonight. We're obviously not going to go through every book. Um, But generally, I'm going to try to lump the voice of the prophets in together. The, The content of the books, remember there's 17 prophets. (laughs) <laughs> the, you know those books that we, we skip over, and that we kind of dread reading in our, in our devotions? Hopefully not. These prophetic, the content of these books is actually going to overlap the history that we've talked about. But I'm going to try to treat them together because as the story unfolds, we'll see the prophets anticipating God's kingdom. And so their singular prophetic voice, I'm going to call it the prophesied kingdom. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, let's do a little bit of introduction to the prophets. I mean, what is a prophet? I think a good definition is available in Exodus chapter 4 and chapter 7 when God is, he's, he's dealing with Moses and uh, he tells him that he's going to go give a message to Pharaoh and Moses says, oh, I can't talk well, I stutter. And God's like, oh man, I didn't think of that before. Golly, what am I going to do? Man, goodness. And God's incredibly patient with Moses. And so he says, okay, I'll give you your brother Aaron and he will be your prophet. That's the phrase in the Bible in Exodus chapter 7. Your prophet. In other words, he will be the one who speaks for you. All right? And that's really helpful for us because we learn that prophets are a mouthpiece. A mouthpiece for someone else. Well, the prophets are God's mouthpiece sent along just to pass along the words of God. And this is what the prophets do. They pass along the word of the Lord. And it's really important to us because we need to remember that when we're reading the prophets, we're reading what are inspired. It's inspired because it's scripture, but in a different sense, it's, it is the voice of the Lord to Israel through the voice of the prophets. We, we see in a sense that the prophets function like covenant enforcers. Covenant enforcers. Moses was the first prophet. He was the definitive, the great prophet. And it was through his mouth that God delivered the law at Sinai, if you remember. And so we learned that all future generations were to live in light of this covenant. And if you remember, we've said this almost every week. To, to remain in the land and to enjoy God's blessing, the people had to obey God. They had to obey his law. If they obeyed, there'd be blessings. Remember the great uh, promises, the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy. If they obeyed, they got God's blessing. But if they disobeyed, they would be exiled. They would be um, kicked out of the land. So the, what the prophets would do is they would, they would come along and they would constantly, after Moses, they would constantly be urging the people, hey, don't forget about the blessing. Don't forget about the curse. If you obey, things will go well. If you disobey, things will go bad. They were constantly urging the people to obey the law. The first great prophets after Moses, I'm sure you know, were Elijah and Elisha. Both served in the northern kingdom. And much of their ministry was confronting kings. One of the themes in the Bible is that the king represents the people. Isn't it great that we have a king that represents us? The king represents the people. Well, the state of spirit, the spiritual state in Israel was so poor during their ministry under King Ahab. You remember Ahab? He was a complete slime ball. There was widespread apostasy. Almost all of the all the prophets were killed. Almost all the prophets were killed. And it's interesting. I was thinking about that. I mean, what happens when a people kill the prophets? You know, in sin, when your heart is hard, you will go to great lengths to avoid hearing the word. It grieves me when I see people in our church avoiding the word of the Lord. Baal is worshipped greatly during this time in Israel. And there's this famous showdown on Mount Carmel where Elijah and the prophets of Baal go head to head. And who wins? Well, Yahweh wins. Yahweh always wins. There's a graphic victory for Yahweh. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, 
Elijah is talking about how dark things are. He says this. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. My goodness, how far away do we feel from the golden age where all of God's promises seemed to be coming true and the people were enjoying God's blessing because they were obeying the law under David and Solomon. And here we have the prophet saying they've killed everybody and I'm the only one left. I mean, is the complete, is the, we're back to the curse. But in 1 Kings chapter 19, God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. So what we see happening is the Lord is preserving a small portion of the nation. This is the concept of the remnant, which we'll talk about tonight. It's almost like a nation within a nation. It's a, it's a leftover mini-nation from another nation. All throughout Elijah and Elisha's ministry... They, they have this sense, they, have a, they hope that the people are going to repent before judgment comes. But eventually, they realize judgment is inevitable and that it's coming no matter what. So this is the context that the prophets are, are speaking in. Now, there are writing prophets and non-writing prophets. We don't have any books written by Elijah, right? Yet he's a prophet. So some of them wrote, wrote down books, and that's, those are preserved for us in the scriptures, thankfully. Now, it's helpful. I, I think this is really helpful to keep track of because I can get really confused when I'm reading the prophets. Like, where does this fit in the history? So let me try to give you, I'll put it all up here so you can just see it all at once. Just a brief explanation of what's going on. After Elijah and Elisha, prophets, many of the prophets begin to write down their oracles. Somewhere in the north, we have a couple. Amos and Hosea are prophetic books that are written to the north. There's fewer, and this isn't all of them, obviously. But most of them are written to uh, the people in the south, the people of Judah. The, and what's really important to understand, and you'll see why this matters a little bit more tonight, is that some of the prophetic messages were delivered before the exile, some were delivered during, and some were delivered after. This is really important, as you will, as you will soon see. The, here's some examples of some pre-exile um, prophets, Isaiah, Micah, and Jeremiah. And then some that are written during the exile. Obviously, Daniel is a great example of this. But then there are three just three that are written after the exile, which we'll see why that matters here in a bit. If we were to sum up all of the prophets, we, I think, could really, really oversimplify and trace two major themes, two dominant themes. Those themes are judgment and hope. The themes that run through the prophets are judgment and hope. Let's talk first about judgment. Judgment, obviously, is not a popular topic in today's church. You can imagine what it would feel like if I said, I'm going to preach a sermon on judgment, right? How you'd, how you'd feel. But the prophets didn't care, right? They, they devoted long portions exposing and describing and confronting the sin that they saw on the people around them. They would 
promptly, they would explain it, they would draw attention to it, and then they would promptly announce that judgment is coming for it. Remember, what's the prophet's job? They are enforcing the covenant. They are reminding people of the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. So that's part of what they're, what they're doing. Now, I think what can happen is that so often when, when we read the prophets, a lot of times we just dip into them to pick up like the Jesus parts, right? Like think about when we read the prophets at Christmas. Like it's just like we care about the parts that anticipate Christ. And, 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 and that's a mistake, I think. Um, we need to understand that the prophets do more than predict Christ. They certainly do that. But they're also speaking directly a real message to a real people in a real time frame. I think one of the, one of the phrases of the author that I was reading, he says, they were not just foretellers, but forth-tellers. It's important to understand, to understand that. I was going to give you a detailed example, but I'll, I'll skip that. If you have questions, we could talk about an example from, from the, book of, the book of Amos. But the big sin that the prophets were confronting, in a sense, was complacency. The people would hear the voice of the prophets. They just didn't care. They just didn't respond. They didn't do anything. Judah and Israel don't take their prophets too seriously. And I wonder if a big part of that is because of the prosperity that they were enjoying. Seems that whenever God's people grow very comfortable, they forget the Lord. They're in danger of forgetting the Lord and even lose their, lose their ear for God's word. It should be very scary for us. But as I mentioned before, their complacency was shattered. These are two really specific historical dates to understand the Old Testament. Judah was defeated and then uh, or Israel was defeated and then Judah was defeated. Now once they were defeated, the prophets said again and again and again, all throughout the prophetic writing, you read, hey, this was not an accident. It was not an accident that the Babylonians came and carried you off. This was God's hand. This is God's judgment. But the people don't repent, and so God brought the judgment. In the book of Ezekiel, he seems to be reminding them of some terrifying language in Ezekiel. But all throughout the judgments that he's issuing on Israel before the exile begins, he reminds them that God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. And then when it starts to happen, he says, hey, what's happening? This is exactly what God said was going to happen. Sin's consequences are real, and you're disobeying, you're disregarding the word of the Lord. Open up to Ezekiel chapter 7. Let's just look at a sample of some of this judgment language. I don't have this on the screen. Look at this in Ezekiel chapter 7. So I'll skip around here a little bit. But he's saying, okay, the word of the Lord came to me. So that makes, makes sense with our definition of a prophet. And he says, you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will plunder you. I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am. 
from the Lord. You read language like this again and again and again. Verse 5, he says, Thus the Lord God says, Disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you. I think we have to be very careful as we view the history of Israel from this perspective of the cross. We have to be so careful about softening the language that the prophets speak out and against sin and seeing the judgment of the Lord. God has not changed at all. As we see the unfolding of God in the Bible, it doesn't mean that God is changing. God has, is the same. He was and is and he is to come. We interact with, we relate to him differently, but he has stayed the same. This same type of language, is this not the attitude we should adopt toward our own sin? We are so careless and so flippant, I fear, with the dangers of sin. So the prophets say again and again, this is not an accident. Don't be complacent. So we, church, must also fight complacency and remember that we will too one day be held accountable for how we live and that our only hope is in Christ. It's the theme of judgment. There's another major theme in the prophets and that's the theme of hope. The theme of hope. It can get kind of confusing because God is simultaneously bringing these terrible judgments, but then he is also promising hope. And so the question is, well, when is this hope going to be realized? Like, is this really soon? Is this really far away? I don't know if you have that feeling. You Like, okay, I know the prophets are talking about the future, but is this talking about the future for current Israel? Or is this like eschatology? So what is going on? So it can be so, it can be so confusing. Well, God does judge his people, but what's beautiful about the prophets is we learn that God's judgment is not the end of his dealings. This can be really helpful for us. If you look up on the screen, I wrote the phrase, there are conditional and unconditional elements of God's covenant. And here's what I mean by that. In the covenant that God made with Israel, the Mosaic covenant, God said, if you disobey, you will lose the blessing. Or if you obey, you will get blessing. Right? That's conditional. You have to meet the condition in order to get the blessing. So Israel forfeited that. Right? So that part of the covenant, they forfeited. However, there are other parts of the covenant that God made with his people that were unconditional. In other words, God's going to do it no matter what. Well, the covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional. The, part, the, the parts of the promise we've talked about, there's certain parts that are conditional, but the big part of it is unconditional. When he said, I will make you a great nation, and I will make your name great, and I will bless all of the peoples of the world through you, that is an unconditional covenant. There's lots of questions about when, where, and how, but God has promised that is going to happen. And so it's important for us to understand that, that God's covenants are the basement, base, uh, the basis, basis of both judgment and hope. Y'all are so patient with me. I really like y'all. It's the basis of both judgment and hope. So what happens is we see the prophets... They're, they're looking ahead in hope. 
They're describing what life is going to be like in Israel. And when they do it, they, they speak of good times. We, in a sense, and Pastor Mark was preaching on this this morning, we see that, that they, use, they use the patterns of past events to look to the future. They speak of good times ahead in terms of action replay. Now, that may not make sense to you, so let me, let me try to do it like this. It's like the prophets are saying, Hey, do you remember when you were in, slave, in, in slavery with, in Egypt? Do you remember how God delivered you? Wasn't that awesome? Man, we, it'd be great if you could do that again. Or do you remember the old covenant? Oh man, I, I wish we could have those blessings again. So in other words, what's happening is the prophets are saying, hey, look back on the things that God has done, and as you look to the future, guess what? It's going to get better. It's going to get better. This is really, really practical for you, so let me show you what I mean. We see patterned events. It's like they're saying, hey, you remember the old exodus? Well, there's going to be a new ex- exodus. You remember the old Passover? Well, there's going to be a new Passover. That's exactly, that's exactly what we talked about this morning. The, the old covenant? Oh, there's going to be a new covenant. Y'all, you remember the old nation? There's going to be, God's going to make a new nation. He's going to make a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new king, a new creation. You see, all of these things have been established in shadow form. In, in a pattern form, and God does away with all of them and makes a bigger, better, new one in Christ. If you, can, if you don't get anything else tonight, get this pattern. And if you don't understand any of these other examples, just get the Exodus one, because we talked about it this morning. As we said at the beginning, God is not going to rebuild the model kingdom, the partial kingdom. He's going to bring the real thing. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing for good, permanently. The prophets, when they spoke of these promises, they were speaking of the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of these promises. So, as we've been doing each week, let's now trace through what the prophets, how the prophets talk about God's people, God's place, and God's rule. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Any questions here? It's hard to cover 26 books. Okay, if you have any questions, jot them down and hopefully we'll have some time at the end. Okay, let me, let me draw on a f- couple of themes that we see the prophets talking about and how they relate to God's people. The first one is, as I said before, the remnant. So we saw that God was going to bring terrible judgment on his people, both Israel and Judah, but he was not going to completely destroy them. You remember the promise after the flood? God's not going to destroy all of them again, right? He was going to persevere and deal with the sinful people. It reminds us of the flood. He will preserve a remnant, and in a sense, it's like he's saying, I'm going to make a new nation. I'm going to create a new nation. Here's a key text for this. In Isaiah chapter 10, we've got a lot of texts kind of coming up, so try to follow along with these or, or you'll just be hearing me and you need to see it in the scripture. Isaiah 10, 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. You see, he's saying, I'm going to destroy a massive part of my people, 
but a remnant will return. Paul picks up on this very theme in the book of Romans, okay? But I'll have to save that for another day. What's really interesting and what's really central for us, though, is the way the prophets talk about the servant, particularly Isaiah. Do you remember how Isaiah talks about the servant? Perhaps you've heard this as the servant songs, four key passages in Isaiah. Often we read them at Christmas or Easter. Because, okay, think about how this works. Because to this point, we have Israel scattered among the nations, and we have Judah exiled in Babylon. The best of the Judeans were exiled in Babylon. And so what the prophets do is they say, they're, they're comparing this and basically, oh, I skipped one. Did I skip? Okay. All right. Bear with me. I skipped one of my slides. Um, let's first talk about the new Exodus. Okay. Then we'll come on the servant. All right, so, so what I was saying is that we have the, the people of Israel and the people of Judah scattered among, uh, among the nations. And so the prophets come along and they say, and they compare their exile to slavery. You can see this language again and again and again. And so if you are once again in slavery, well, you once again need an exodus. And so the, the sense is, well, if God did that once, then, then I bet he could do it again. A key passage here for this is Jeremiah 16. I must have missed it on my slides. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 16. Whenever in this, as you're flipping, whenever in the scriptures the prophets or, the, or God is saying, just like I did with Moses, or just like I did with Pharaoh, or just like I did at the Red Sea, he's hearkening back to the Exodus. And it's real important to see. That's exactly what's happening in Jeremiah 16, 14. Okay, so he's looking ahead to the future saying, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought the people up out... But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where I've driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there's going to be a day when people aren't really going to be talking about the first exodus. They're going to be talking about this next exodus where God brings back his people. So he's building on the pattern of the exodus. We need a new exodus because we are enslaved to sin. Okay, now let's pick up on the servant. Forgive me, folks. So the prophets are constantly talking about this new exodus over and over and over again. When is this new exodus going to come? Well, Isaiah comes along and he clarifies that this new exodus will be accomplished by this mysterious figure, the servant. The servant. We'll look at a bunch of these texts. So, so if you're not tracking, just hang in there. He's saying that this new exodus, it will be, it will be realized and it's going to be accomplished by the servant. The first text let's look at is Isaiah chapter 44. Okay? Uh, don't look all these up and uh, bear with me on how this works. So in, in 44.2, 1 and 2, he says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant... Israel, whom I have chosen, 
Thus says the Lord whom made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Okay, so, so the reason we're looking at this is because it seems like in this text, the servant is who? It's, it's Israel, right? And it seems really to be the case because he's talking in detail about he was formed and made and will get, will get help, right? So in some senses, the servant is a, is a nation, Okay? Okay, so let's, let's look at another text. But there's other texts where the servant... What is going on with my slides? Okay, so, but there's other texts where the servant does not seem to be a nation, but an individual. An individual who will rescue the remnant of... Of Israel. Look down at 49, 5, and 6. And now the Lord says, But he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And he says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then Isaiah chapter 52, I don't know if I had this text. Folks, I'm sorry, I think my slides are out of order. Let me read this one for you. Well, that's a big one. The, the big servant song in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it's saying that the servant that will achieve this he will achieve this by his death. So, so in some senses, the servant is the nation. And in other sense, the servant is an individual who's going to rescue Israel. And he's going to do it by dying. Okay, now that, that gets really confusing. And that's what we read in Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, there's a sense where the prophets use language. My goodness, I'm... Okay, where the prophets will use language that seems like it's already happened, right? This is a great example. This is one that we read all the time in Isaiah chapter 53. He says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he's talking about the servant and what the servant is going to do. He's talking about as if it's already happened. Which can be confusing. But the reason the prophets are doing that is because they're saying, Hey, this is so certain. It's, we're going to talk as if it had already happened. It's called the prophetic perfect. Right? So here's the clincher. This mysterious individual is Israel. He's an individual and he's also the true Israel. Did you catch that? It's the nation of Israel and it's an individual. He is the true Israel. He is the one who dies for the remnant of Israel so that the people of God can be rescued from their sins. This servant, this individual will face judgment for big Israel. He will endure their exile in their place so that they can be forgiven. In other words, 
A new Israel is being created through the work of the servant. Which reminds us much of the first exodus where a whole nation was created when they were delivered from slavery. But we also see that there is a inclusion of the nations. So we've talked about God's people uh, being cared for by the servant, but let's also talk about the inclusion of the nations. The servant's role will actually extend beyond Israel. That's why God says in Isaiah 46, I'm sorry, I've got these all. I'm so sorry, guys. I'll, I'll read this in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach, here's the phrase, to the ends of the earth. Okay, now remember what's going on. We are talking about initially the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Isaiah, where he's going to bless, or to Abraham, where he's going to bless all the nations of the world. So here we're reading about the servant who is going to bring salvation that will reach to all the ends of the earth. And that's why we come to Isaiah chapter 60. There we go. Where we read, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness to the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, what's taking place is the prophets are predicting a time when the promise to Abraham that all the world will be blessed through Israel will take place. Okay? Now let's move on. I'm sorry that was a little bit confusing. Thanks for bearing with me. I'll try to clarify later if I need to. But let's talk briefly about God's place. God's place. Let's first look at the new temple. And this is, this is exciting to think about. So remember, the temple was destroyed at, at one point. The, let's think first about um, the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is one of the prophets, and he begins with a vision of how the glory of God is leaving the temple right? The temple is just a shell, right? Because the people are not worshiping properly. And soon after the exile, it's actually going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. In other words, he's looking at, he's saying God is leaving the temple and it's going to be destroyed. Well, God leaving his people, what's that a sign of? Judgment, right? It's a sign of judgment, just like we see with the ark. When the ark leaves, God's leaving his people. So Ezekiel begins with a vision of how God is leaving the temple. But Ezekiel does not end like that. This is really interesting, and I think I can actually explain this clearly. So we'll try that. The book ends with a whole new vision of a new temple. It's in nine chapters, so we can't read all of it. But Ezekiel envisions a new temple that is far, far more amazing than the first. Let me just read one little passage here in Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Okay. The 
vision of the temple begins in Ezekiel 40 through the next nine chapters. Look at verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, okay, so it's during the exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me into the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. And then he goes on to say, look in verse 5. So he's starting to describe what's taking place. And he says, Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. And the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six cubits long. You can just look at some of the headings that are here. He's going through and describing in incredible detail what this temple is like. He's envisioning a new temple. Okay? Now, what he sees in this vision, besides how big and how beautiful and how massive it is, he sees God entering it. God is going back into his temple. Furthermore, this temple is very strange because it has a river flowing out of it. This is not a fancy fountain sort of thing. There is a river flowing out of a new temple. And this new river, this river gives life to all of the world. If you've read carefully, if you understand what's going on in Genesis, this should make you think of Eden and of the new creation. God's, so that's the, the next thing, is the new creation. It's clear that this temple in Ezekiel, this, this temple that he envisions, it's not an ordinary building on earth, right? Because otherwise it would be flooded all the time. And somehow this flood would be blessing everybody. That doesn't make, that makes sense. It's a symbol, I believe, of the new creation. I think one of the most helpful texts to, to get your mind around this is Isaiah 65, where he says, Behold, I, I will create new heavens and new earth, and the form of things will not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. In other words, what he's saying is God's plan of salvation, it's, it's not just for the Israelites. He is creating a new Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is not just one city, but it is a whole creation. Remember, sin ruined all the world. God created all the world, and he intends to renew all the world. So I believe that this new Jerusalem is not some city that's located somewhere on earth because that wouldn't fit everybody. It is a new creation. He's anticipating the new creation. There's a lot of other texts that we could look at for that, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. Let's move on now to the final phase here, and that's God's rule and God's blessing. The prophets are looking ahead to the way that God's people will experience God's rule, and that is through the new covenant. Now, we have to remember that God has not abandoned his past promises. But the question is, how is he going to fulfill them? How is he going to be their God and they be his people? How is he going to dwell among them? How, how are they going to be a nation and in God's place with God when the sin problem remains? In other words, what about the blessings and the curses? If the people keep sinning, isn't the only thing they're going to ever experience curse? So there's a problem. God has to find a way to deal with sin. 
He has to find a permanent solution so that sin can be forgiven and that God can remain holy and just, but so that the people of God can also know him intimately. And what we see all the way from the beginning, back at Noah in Genesis chapter 6, is that the problem is in the heart. Do you remember? God saw the people in the days of Noah that their heart was wicked and does evil all the time. And even though God brought judgment, that didn't solve the problem, right? So God is going to have to do something different. In order to do this, he's going to have to change them from the inside out. And that's exactly what God does in the New Covenant. One of the most famous New Covenant passages is in Jeremiah 31, 31, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The phrase new covenant is the most well-known, but whenever the prophets talk about an everlasting covenant, that's also referring to the new covenant as well. In other words, what he's going to do, if you, if you were to read just two verses later, God says that he's going to give them a new heart. And he's going to put his law inside of their minds. The law is no longer going to be external, outside in an ark somewhere else. But God's going to put it inside of them and give them a desire to obey it. And furthermore, God's going to give the Spirit. The Spirit. Both Ezekiel and Joel give these incredible promises about how God's people are going to enjoy the Spirit. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay. And uh, let me just read this to you. You've probably, you're probably familiar with this. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, this is the part where he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. In other words, God is going to, in the new covenant, he's going to give his spirit and put it into the lives of his people. That's why just as we read this morning, when Jesus came in Luke chapter 22, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. God is going to relate to mankind under different circumstances in the new covenant. There's a whole new way that is coming. But we also see that God is going to bring a new king. A new king. Back in the old days, right, you remember that God ruled through Saul and David and Solomon and then even all the idiots that followed them. God ruled through a king through the old, in the days of the old covenant. Well, in the new covenant, he's going to do the same thing. The prophets were building on the promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7, where God told David, I'm, going to, I'm not going to build, you don't need to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And that house I'm going to build you is going to include an everlasting throne, a king that will forever be on the throne. The salvation of God's people And all of the fulfillment of God's promises would depend entirely upon will that king come and will he be faithful. And that's why we're so excited when we meet the Messiah, which means the anointed one. That's king language. Do you see how it's all fitting together? One of the most well-known passages we often read but may not see how this is anticipating that 
In Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Have you ever wondered what that's talking about? How's the government upon his shoulder? Well, he's bringing his kingdom, and he's going to carry it. It's, it's his government. The kingdom of God will be on this new king, and he's got it covered. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And look at this great phrase. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This new king will bring everlasting peace and an everlasting rule. He's going to bring together God's people in God's place under God's rule. And this is what his rule is going to be like. And it's going to grow and it's going to never have an end. Doesn't that sound good? This is one of the really fun and exciting ones. Take a look at this one. Remember, the promise included not just a king, not just a people, but also a great blessing. Well, look how the prophets anticipate this blessing. This is so fun. Amos chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes. Okay, what in the world? What does that mean? Can anybody just honestly admit that when you first read that, you don't know what that means, right? Okay, I had to read it like 14 times, okay? So, okay. There's going to be a day that comes when the guy that plows, the guy who digs up the ground and plants stuff, there's going to be the reaper who's going to come in so fast. The guy who picks the food, he's going to come in so fast that it's going to be like there's no time at all. In other words, there's coming a day where there will be so much prosperity that the guy who plants will have the guy who picks immediately behind him because you'll put something in the ground and it will immediately push, bring forth fruit. Do you see? Look how it keeps going. Uh, the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes. The guy who picks the grapes will immediately be pushed on by the guy who, uh, who presses the grapes and they will immediately be planted again. In other words, the land will be so fertile that as soon as the reaper has reaped, the plowman will be ready to sow again. The ground doesn't need to rest. There are no thorns. There's no delay in season. This is talking about the land free from the curse. It's work without the curse. Productivity free from the curse. They're looking forward to a future time that there will be so much blessing on the world that once God's rule is established, everything will fall into place like it was in Eden. Everything will be back to the way it was in Eden. There will be a return of the blessings of Eden where peace and prosperity will abound. Grapes will grow so rapidly that as soon as someone plants them, they'll have to be picked and treaded for wine and there'll be so much wine, it's going to drip off the mountains. This is language looking, this is figurative language looking back to Eden. And if that one's too complicated, this is the one everybody gets. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf shall come together and a little child shall lead them. This is a picture of the creation without the curse. If there's no death in this new creation, then there's no danger for a child to be leading a lion. Do you see? 
or for him to play at the edge of a snake's den. This new creation is going to be like the original creation. Yes. So this is looking forward to a future promise, a future blessing, but the way that it's looking forward is it's looking back. So it's like saying, hey, you remember, old cre- you remember creation before sin? What's well, like looking ahead to the new creation, but it's using that pattern. Okay? So, so in the original creation, there was no death, and so lions didn't kill people, so it's fine for, for, for children to play with them. Right? So it's, it's, it's a picture of the world without the curse. That's the beauty of this language. This incredible blessing. But the prophets also look ahead to a return from exile. To a return from exile. And what happens here is that 60 years after the exile began, it looks like some of the promises were going to be fulfilled again. You remember this when we were talking about Daniel a couple years ago. The, the Babylonians are defeated by Cyrus of Persia. And he says, okay, you can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild the temple. And so they may be thinking, oh man, this new blessing, this new promise, what the prophets were talking about is coming, it's coming, it's coming. The temple is rebuilt under Ezra. The walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt under Nehemiah. It's as if some of these promises are being fulfilled again. But it's abundantly clear that this is not the case. There are a couple reasons for this. Only a few people make it home. They do so under incredible opposition. Remember, they build the wall with a sword in one hand and the tools in the other. But more importantly, we read in Ezra that there are some who, when they saw the new temple, they wept. They sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Alright, so there are some, they saw the new, the new temple, and they shouted. But if, if I'd put two more verses up there, it would go on to say, but those who were older, they wept, because they remembered the former glory of the temple. This can't be this new temple that Ezekiel has promised. It's not even as big as Solomon's. It can't be. So what happens is the three post-exilic prophets, they, they come along and they prophesy, right? You remember the last three guys? They come along and what do they do? They say the same thing the prophets ahead of them said. They condone sin and they warn of, or they speak against sin and they warn of coming judgment. But they also look ahead to a time when God will fulfill his promises and bring his covenant blessings. I don't know if you know this, but our organization of the Old Testament is not the same as it is in the Hebrew Bible. It's organized differently. And in the original Hebrew Bible, uh, the Bible ends, the Old Testament ends with with 2 Chronicles. And 2 Chronicles ends with a promise that the exile will soon be over. So spiritually speaking, the way we need to understand this is that God's people are still in exile. Spiritually. Physically, some of them are out of exile, but they're still in exile spiritually. So they're waiting for God's deliverance, not from Nebuchadnezzar. God deals with that. They're waiting for spiritual deliverance. They're waiting for this king. And the very last of the prophets, they insist 
that he's coming. Malachi, right? This is the last prophet in our Old Testament. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In other words, this person's going to have a messenger come before him. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It's coming. It's coming. So we can fill in our chart. Who are God's people? The remnant of Israel, but it's also expanded to all the nations. Remember, this blessing is going to all the nations. Where is God's place? Well, it's no longer Canaan anymore. It's a new temple, and it's a new creation. The prophets are anticipating the new temple and the new creation. What is God's rule? It'll be the new covenant. And what will his blessing be? It will come through this new king and this great blessing. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late. Sorry about the misordered slides. Also, I don't have the right notes. So uh, thanks for bearing with me. If there's anything I can clarify, feel free to come after and chat with me. And uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your kindness. I thank you that you use weak mouthpieces. And Lord, we will give you praise. We anticipate the day when we will be restored to you fully and restored to one another and restored in our relationship to the earth. To that we say, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You're, You're dismissed, except for those of you who have a trailer.